Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly global discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Carson Tamar, and today I'm happy to be joined by Jakob Flash. Hello. And Kevin White. Hello, everybody. On today's episode, we are covering the newest ambitious outing from filmmaker Steve McQueen, bringing us five new films released together as part of the Small Axe Anthology. McQueen captures the lives of a group of friends and their families in London's West Indian community from the late 1960s to the early 80s. Working our way through the five films, let's begin with Mangrove. On Sunday, the 9th of August in North Kensington, a demonstration took place against the police, which degenerated into totally inexcusable violence. There may be some who believe that they have been the victim of injustice at the hands of the police. Others who, like parasites, feed on these beliefs and seek to turn them to their own advantage, deliberately creating hate and violence. These defendants are all guilty of the serious criminal offense. Mangrove tells the true story of the Mangrove Nine and the trial that took place at the Old Bailey in 1970. Kevin, why don't you start us off with this one? What were your thoughts on Mangrove? Well, I thought that the uh, the uh, the entire uh, ensemble was very strong altogether. You know, even though having somebody like Latita Wright in it, you know, she's a very big name now. But you know, even though she was in it, she didn't overshadow the remaining cast, which a lot of them I hadn't heard of. But again, they all gave incredible performances especially during the uh, the uh, trial sequence, which in my opinion was a lot better than uh, trial of the uh, Chicago 7. I'm kind of happy that you just mentioned this because I kind of think when I watched Mangrove for the first time, I mean, I watched it once, but when I watched it, I immediately basically tweeted, this is what the trial of Chicago, Chicago 7 should have looked like <laughs> because it's... Well, I should probably start with, with the idea of my relationship with Steve McQueen's cinema is uh, I want to say pretty strong. So the only thing that I kind of was uh, I don't want to say iffy about, but I'll say the the only thing that was kind of slow, slow oh, slightly underwhelming to me was Widows. But everything else is like a five star festival, and this is no difference to me. I was super happy to see this, and then um, it kind of has to be said that you know, like Stephen Queen has a very particular way of filmmaking. He's more of a he's more about putting you, the viewer, in the sort of, quote-unquote, the electric chair, and then just torturing you with the images on the screen and the, with the visuals and the sound and the story is not supposed to be an easy ride to anyone. And Mangrove basically just ticks all these boxes. It's a wonderfully told, harrowing portrayal of, well, a real-life horror that actually happened to a bunch of people in the 70s. And right, it continued to happen all the way until the 90s and then well in in many respects continues today because racism is not a solved problem so i was absolutely taken aback by this film and i wouldn't be i, w- I wouldn't have any problems actually putting it in you know on my top 10 list of the year because it's absolutely beautiful the ensemble is great um i think some performances are a little bit over the top but that's i think uh part of the deal i would probably say that mcqueen was direct directing them in a way that to, to kind of just perk them up a bit like the uh, the cop who's um well the quote-unquote the stereotypically racist cop i think he's a i'm not sure if he's a real guy or if he's an amalgamation of a few people 
but he's he's almost comically absurd in a way he's uh, he, he he's acting but it's for a reason because he's supposed to be the epitome of evil and it works so well it's t- it's a two and a half hour sort of roller coaster of horror and beautifully tragic tragic drama that's pretty much what you'd expect out of steve mcqueen this is well this is him basically just touching the same level of competence and le- same level of artistry that he that, that brought him the oscar in 2013 for 12 years in my opinion it's a great film yeah i'd be hard pressed to say that this isn't probably my favorite thing steve mcqueen has done to the past or done in the past I should say rather um, he's a filmmaker who a lot of people really really love and adore and I just don't necessarily vibe with all the time I definitely don't hate a lot of his films I really like Widows um, 12 Years a Slave I don't like Shame he's a director who and we'll talk about this obviously later especially with Lovers Rock he has a lot of very atmospheric filmmaking techniques that he uses in a very very unique way that doesn't always vibe with me but I think Mangrove is genuinely a close masterpiece. Uh, the courtroom drama is a genre that we've seen played out so much over the past decade. You know, we've seen so many entries um, into this. And I think this is probably one of the strongest in years. Um, I'm happy that I'm not the only one who is going to come on here and say this makes Trial of Chicago 7 look rather terrible. Um, I know I complain about Netflix plenty on the show, um, but this makes that look like a child's play effort. I mean, this is such a well-directed, such a well-written feature. Um, I think that Sean Parks gives one of the best performances of the entire anthology here. Latita Wright, um, you can definitely say a lot about her personally right now, um, but just kind of like avoiding that. I think she is also stunning here. Um, The entire ensemble, though, really is just giving it their all um, moving, touching, inspiring, um, it also helps that you don't know if you don't know the ending. I truly didn't know if we were going towards a happy or a tragic end. Um, and I was just enthralled for the entire two hour runtime more than any other thing in this project. I find it weird that they chose to start with Mangrove, considering this clearly is the one with the biggest emotional climax. This is clearly the our obviously longest addition into the series coming in at two hours. Um, I think just over two hours. So this is truthfully like out of everything in this series this is like a standalone film and i think as a film this is one of the strongest things steve mcqueen has done period i really love this film or show that's something that i'm sure i mean i kind of hate that that's becoming such a vocal point of this conversation on if it's a show or movie because it doesn't really matter ultimately it's just a strong piece of media i mean this is an interesting sort of thing that sorry to cut in in here but um on bbc where i watched this they don't call it an anthology series. They don't call it a mini series. They don't call it a. Th- they call it a collection of films, which is which is kind of weird because like you kind of just expect a t- well something that's produced for TV to be to fit one of the co- in the confines of a TV show or an or a mini series or something like this where there is a um, connective tissue between uh, even even if they are sort of unrelated so so to speak well they only related thematically and sort of in the terms of the period. That, is, that they're set in but it's it's one of those things that you, you kind of just think well i've been harping on uh, on on the sort of renaissance of tv for for years now because it's all like an excuse for just relishing in plot and plot and more plot and and, and then just like sur- surrendering themes and um like a more like i say deeper discussion and then basically steve mcqueen was kind of like hi 
so can I have a can I have a budget for um for a TV show here? And then he just makes five films out of this. Well, granted, four of them are like 70 minutes long, but hey, still films. They have like a beginning, middle, and the end. They don't they don't rely on anything else. And then and and he basically just got it on. Uh, I think well, BBC played uh, paid for this, so. I don't want to say this is a massive amount of money he 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 used to do this, but um, I'm kind of happy to see to see this uh, this is the, the way the the direction of TV is hopefully turning. Yeah, no, that's I mean I, that's what I noticed here too was uh, the way it was marketed was you know as five films it wasn't even though the whole it was marketed as a series it was marketed as a series of five films, so I think the. TV versus movie debate is going to be one that's going to continue for quite some time. I mean, you look at when Twin Peaks came out in 2017, a lot of people had that on their best of movies list and their best of TV list. So I think that's something that's still very much up for debate. But as you have stuff like this or Mr. Robot continue to come out, I think those lines just are very, very blurred at this point. Well, in terms of like Twin, Twin Peaks is kind of more decisively a TV show, right? Then it has a, like the season has an arc, where, whereas this is basically where people will, people will put this on their top 10 lists and this conversation will be a little bit more clear cut when they, when they will say, this is just a TV, the collection of films that were just aired on TV. And then the, this, the distinction between cinema and TV is pretty much gone thanks to COVID now because everything's either streamed or, or distributed in a, in a different way nowadays. So it's kind of like we're, well, we're in a new, new, brave new world, baby. You know, so, so I'm, I'm super happy to see this. And then, you know, just to bring this back to, um, to the conversation about, man- about Mangrove and then in compared once again to the trial of Chicago 7. And well, it, it kind of just looks like, because um, they're all based on, two, on true stories. It's all a courtroom drama. And then one of them, and they, they're both written and directed by, um, people who have considerable egos behind their eyes, if you know what I mean. Um, but one of them knows w- how to put the story first and then just kind of just use their own voice in their storytelling and their, in their writing to kind of just help the story along as opposed to just give themselves a, you know, a pat on the back. And, and this is not Aaron Sorkin, by the way, this is, this is Steve McQueen, who's just absolutely amazing when it comes to this. And then, you know, but what always kind of drove me t- towards his cinema is the, the way he kind of just, uh, he has these sequences in here as well. And then they kind of just, well, they're in all, all five of, of these films, but he can compose a long take like um, uh, Michal Haneke. And then just, he will just put a, com- uh, put a camera in the corner of the room and it will just sit there static uh, while something horribly, horribly, horribly terrible is happening in front of the camera and he just he will just let it record and then you will just not comment he will not put music in behind it to just help you you know figure out what kind of emotions you should be feeling he will just show you a bunch of people sitting in a restaurant and then having um the police barge in and just ruin everything and then arrest them and beat the crap out of them while the camera is rolling and then people will just leave and the camera will still record like a bowl on the floor just like just to show what what kind of a mess they made and just this is the type of cinema that he's that this is the type of sort of um oh, visual storytelling that tells you oh this is not a tv show this is not something that's just oh happens on TV. this is this is this is cinema it just happens to be projected on your tv and it's brilliant 
Yeah, and I think I think that that shot with the uh, with the uh, kettle on the floor, just kind of going back and forth. I think that's going to be a shot that a lot of people are going to talk about all year. Cause it's just, yeah. and that's something I was I always really like about Stephen McQueen films in general is that he has such. It's just it's so simple, but and it's just it, it ends up just being so so profound. It's it's ultimately hard to really to really pinpoint, but that's that's cinema. He's kind of like a he's... procedural horror. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Right? Like in 12 Years a Slave, he will show you where um, Chivatel Ejiofor, he was caught by um, the paddy rollers. And I, I think I, I still can't remember, can't forget the scene because they, they caught oh, him yeah. and they tied him, um, they tied him to a tree or they hanged him from a tree just so that he, just, was, he was stunning. Just that long shot. And he, and he just sits there in a very sort of glacial zoom Pretty much, yeah, this, I, is, this yeah. is Stanley Kubrick meets Michal Haneke, and 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 just suffocating very slowly, and just this this is this is imagery that just seared yeah, like, into my it's, brain. It's one of those films I haven't seen in years, and that's that's one of those shots I I cannot forget that shot. See, I think Steve McQueen, is, I mean, throughout his entire career, he's proved to just be a master at like connecting with human emotion through the realm of cinema and through cine- the cinematic lens and understanding the relationship between the two of those. And I think these five episodes or movies or whatever you want to call them will really prove that. Um, you talk about the haunting effects of scenes like that. I think this also really thrives because of his ability to capture humanity and the joy of community. And it's seeing that community get tore down and get attacked attacked that really is what creates the most emotional pull that you get out of this episode i find and really gauges you in the conflict and especially obviously we'll talk about this in lovers rock but i think that this five these five shows really capture humanity and the human spirit and the spirit of a community for all the bad and good that happens to that community it really captures that in a masterclass way i think that is pretty much undeniable and like i said i think like out of everything steve mcqueen has done this is where it shined the most for me it's always been really apparent but it's never quite hit me i think in every single one of these episodes or movies it really connected with me i think it's undeniable really i mean uh, there's another thing that i mean i brought up in my own reviews of this and i'm still working on a review for education by the way but um he's i mean that, that looking over this sort of series um or collection of films as a, as the bbc have put it i've noticed that this is he must be well aware of the fact that this is the pinnacle of his career. This is something very important to him because um, I, I think he's, well, because he's not just talking about the British, sort of the black community in Britain. He's talking about a very specific community of the so-called um, quote-unquote Windrush generation. I don't know if you know what these, what this, what this sort of entails, but it, well, just for the listener out there, after World War II, um, when there was absolute massive lack, lack of manpower in Britain because, well, people died in war, the British government shipped a whole lot of people from the West Indies to Britain to help rebuild the country. And well, other countries did it as well. France basically used their colonies in North Africa to do the same. And then this is pretty much how Britain became multicultural over the course of, I want to say, one generation. And this is kind of where, well, Britain had already had a very difficult relationship with um, other races because of their colonial past. And then this is not, well, and this is where it kind of all came to a head because all of a sudden, well, people who were just living in their little white communities like Notting Hill were sort of, hold on, where, what's going on? There's like a Jamaican street, street coming, coming up in here. And then they were just 
uneasy with this and this is where the sort of friction happened and and well it's it's a terrible tragedy that these these things happen but it was but this is this is now why britain is a multicultural sort of melting pot of cultures part of the reason why that is as well well how, however steve mcqueen had always always been interested at least in my mind in um the I call it the Davidian struggle, as in the David versus Goliath struggle. And I think the small axe is, well, the title even kind of hints at this, right? Because there's a Bob Marley song, you know, if, I think if you're a tall tree, wear a small axe, as in like the power of small people with little small axes can bring out the tallest tree and, and stuff like that. So even in, I think in Hunger, he would be talking about people, about the Northern Irish uh, political, political prisoners who just were bashing their head against the oppressive state. Uh, 12 years of slave self-explanatory um, widows, black women against uh, the mafia. Hello, that's st still the same sort of relationship. Small people standing up against something, a, a greater evil or greater oppression. And this, this thing just brings it all together and just shows it in a historically relevant context with archival footage everywhere. Because the mangrove, I think, it also all of them, I think, have, right? No, maybe Loveridge doesn't. But they all have, like, photographs of the from, from the era people are just what well, you're, you're just constantly made aware of the fact that this this is real this is like i'm not making stuff up this this stuff's real and this, this is why i think uh this 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 should be rewatched and re revisited and talked about and you know because this is not bob zemeck is making um ma making a you know press this is not green book right this is not hollywood um sort of awards bait this is i think he knows he's making stuff for the ages I mean, this is very personal for Steve McQueen. He grew up in London in this era. Like this is his like life. He grew up yep. not necessarily yeah. through each one of these historical events. Like he wasn't necessarily part of, but you know, like he was there, he was part of this community. So I think undeniably, like this is one of his most personal works. And I think that inspiration and really, you know, drive to capture something important here shines beautifully. I bet you money oh, yeah. that he probably attended reggae parties. In like housing estates in London, this this like he he must not he definitely knows this you know how like a room full of people dancing and smoking pot and having a good time smells like like this is not fiction to him. So on the note of people dancing and going to a party, let's discuss the next entry: Lovers Rock. Lover's Rock is the only fictional story out of the Small Axe series. This is the story of young love and music at a blues party in the early 1980s. Kevin, why don't you start us off again here with this one? Well, I mean, it's, again, it's just the way that Steve McQueen films things. I think it really shines through with this, just how, how you know, the camera just floats through the party kind of from moment to moment. It's it's not it doesn't feel forced it's just all natural and even for just being a fictional story again just how natural it all feels you know it's it's really quite something you know but one thing i kept thinking about when i was watching it was um this movie called babylon from uh, 1981 it's from the uh, the from the uh, uk which kind of set in the same time period and a lot of that movie there's um those kind of dub parties where you no, know, they have a giant sound system, DJ, all, all, all of it. People smoking in the corners, dancing. 
And that's something I kept thinking about because you no, know, that movie was very much about you no, know, no, just the absolute racism that that you no know, these communities were going through at that time, and then to see you no know, kind of the flip side of it. No, that I just kept thinking that would make a great double feature of you not know, seeing you no, know, no, just the pure, this the absolute um, horror that was going on versus you no know, these moments where they're able to just sit back and not think about, not think about you know what's going on in the world and just just live. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say this is probably my favorite of the five. Like I don't want to spoil things for the for the, for the next forty five minutes or so, but yeah, I think this is the absolute pinnacle of what the, what this thing is and one. I'm not even sure if this is the only, well, if, if you could call it like the fictitious, well, the, it's fictitious because there's no real historical figure, isn't there? But, you know, it's a thematically accurate, I think. And um, I'm, this is totally spot on that, you know, well, my sort of interpretation of what this film was is not exactly sort of well, in line with, well, there's racism going on and there's the sort of refuge of this. It's almost like, because well, Steve McQueen does not let you forget that, that there's things outside that, um, uh, well, the, the racism kind of just is still there because you, you can see it, it's everywhere in the film. Like the, the, these boys are bringing in the sound system and the guy kind of just sits down on the, on the back of the truck and has a cigarette. And then he just looks, extreme just looks with like local chavs, um, like white boys and who just give him a dirty look. And then you can see that there's, um, you know, like there's, there's something going on in there. There's, there's a, there, there's a sort of belligerent sort of relationship in there between yeah. us. Like when uh, this, uh, I can't remember what's her name. Was it Yvonne? I can't remember. Like there's one girl who just gets pissed off in the uh, in the party and then just goes home. And then the the the, uh, the main character, she she goes after her and she can't find her. And then what she finds is basically just a bunch of drunk uh, folks, white guys. Right, who just uh, you know catcall her and you know uh, accost her and then probably if, if she if she didn't go back into the in, into the house they would have probably attacked her, so like even when they go to the party and then they go get on the bus right they well they spend some time in like a little merry-go-round and they go into the bus, um, and they can see the conductor asking for the tickets you never see his face right all you see is like the, it's like a, almost like a cartoonish sort of representation because you only see the torso it's kind of like he's towering over them. He just says like I don't know how many pence per ticket, and they just obediently go like yes, yes, let's do this. Because if they if they say if if they say something wrong, so, something out of place, or they, if if they, if they even look like they don't have any money, this guy's gonna cause them trouble. He's gonna throw them off the bus because he's white and they're black, and then there's a the dynamic between the two, because um, well, there there is a he represents the the Babylon. He represents the white oppressive power, and then they they just ha have have this sort of automatically subservient relation to relationship to it because they don't even have a voice they no one's going to defend them so this it's there it's just but they it's kind of like they're going to a church because the church is like the refuge or even in wars or across history like you'd have bloodshed on the streets but people would go into places of worship and there's a reason why they're called sanctuaries and then this is why you know people say oh you know, you seek sanctuary somewhere because wars would would end at the doors of a church and this sort of house where these people play music and just forget about their problems. It's kind of like the mass. It's kind of like they're participating in almost like a religious experience where they just shed away all their shit, all their all their stuff. It just goes away because that's only music 
and love and sort of this sort of, you know, <laughs> the dynamic between bodies and, you know, males and females going on. It's, it's all, it's all, that's all that matters. I'll quickly say yeah. you're not alone, Jakob, when saying that this is your favorite. We put a pull out on Twitter at Clapper Podcast if you want to give us a follow. And this was voted as the favorite of the Clappercast community. So yeah, I mean, I think this is, in the conversation of like, is this a movie or a series? I think this is what makes me say it's probably a series. If this was just a standalone film, this probably wouldn't work nearly as well as it does, but it does remind you of the humanity and the community and what is being lost and what is being taken by oppression. Um, and it's just joyful. I think this plays incredibly well in the COVID environment where face-to-face -face interaction has been stripped from most of our lives, at least to, you know, at least drastically changed. Um, you know, no one here is wearing masks. Everyone's, you know, you're able to be close to each other. Um, you know, it just harkens back to like that core emotional need to be close to people and to meet people and to have that interaction. Um, and I think it's just joyful. This is the only uh, part of this series that I would say feels like it goes a little bit long for me. It is, I think, around 70 minutes. I think they could have shaved 10 to 15 minutes off somewhere in the editing room. Um, but when it comes to atmosphere and joy and the use of music, you know, McQueen did a music video for Kanye West, and this feels very similar to it, in my opinion. Even though the emotions are drastically different, that is attempting to capture mania. This is trying to capture, you know, the joys of human connection. Um, just the use of music to create an atmosphere and connect that deeper emotional core, as I mentioned, McQueen does in the cinematic realm and lens. I think this is like truthfully the core identity of this uh, episode. I think it is just really beautiful, even if it's not flawless. Yeah, no, that was something, definitely something I was noticing throughout um, this one was like just the atmosphere of it. It was very joyful, but there was all, you always feel that there was something else very, very deep under the surface that was no, yet no, the wrong moment. It's just gonna very, it's gonna bubble up, but no, just the way that just kept everything very joyful and just you know, you know just movement you know, just how it was all you know edited together and plays together it's uh, it's I think that's why a lot of us voted it to be the our favorite one out of the out of the five I mean the, the, the what you just said when you think that this there's, there's an atmosphere of something like there's something going to happen there's this impending doom in sort of Okay, well, because there's there's these little scenes of like little sort of clashes of like the culture clash because they they, they kind of feel like they're they like what well, he makes you feel like this is something in that that shouldn't be happening there because they're in not in their own neighborhood they're not in even like the, it makes you feel like they're not in their own country which is an absolute tragedy because this is still happening by the way like Britain's not 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 where it's supposed to be right now it's it's horrible. I mean, America has its has has her own problems. Like everyone knows that. But hey, there's there, there's this thing. But he makes you feel like there's something going to happen, but it never does. And then there's, and it kind of makes you feel like this film kind of just ends prematurely, in a way, doesn't it? Like, um, I would probably say if you say, oh well, there was probably five minutes you could shave off. And I was thinking that little confrontation at the end with a guy who kind of looks like Jamie Bell, but I'm pretty sure he's not a Jamie Bell. Um, where they go into the workshop and they just have to have a time alone, probably to bang, right? But, but and then they put the music on and they just want to have a little bit of a one to one time. And then just someone 
reports to the guy's boss that oh these two these two people went into the workshop so he just immediately just walks in at the you know at ass crack of dawn and just shoes them off and says well you, you, this is not your place to do things because you know you're not my equal what are you doing i'm your boss and then he just calls him a boy as well which is definitely definitely for a reason right so that's I, I, i'm saying like, i wouldn't even check out this this all this is this is needed like the, um, i know this kind of feels like it's kind of just occasionally drags along but i think it's for on, for purpose and there's so many little things kind of just hidden away as well like did you guys notice i mean you must have noticed the uh, guy getting off the bus or they, they see him see him um outside of the bus a black man carrying a white cross like there's so I think if I when I watch this again, I think there's, there's probably going to be even more little sort of symbolism hidden in there because this is pro this is not only just a celebration of this cultural sort of power of music. This is something more. That's why I kind of love it so much is because I kind of feel like this is this lends itself to just multiple sittings where you can just just chew over these little bits of visual detail and just see how smartly this is put together. You know, I think that's a really interesting point you brought up about how this plays in response, not just to the COVID, you know, era, but also to the era of the Black Lives Matter kind of modern movement um, that we saw in 2020 on a global scale. You know, it's been a big conversation for years, but this year we really saw a big push in that department, um, at least socially, sadly, politically you know, not so much at this point. And we'll definitely talk about this with the next film. But I think that this is a series that really, like, I don't want to say lucked out due to these just horrendous things, but I think this is a series that plays extremely well in the political and social time that it is coming out at. And it's kind of shocking how well it works, considering this is not, you know, made as a reactionary piece to the current times. This was supposed to premiere at Cannes. You know, it was a, long in the making, obviously, for, you know, five films of this substance. Um, I think that it's in, clearly enhanced by the kind of modern events that we've seen throughout this year. Um, so I'm really curious how it would play outside of that time. If we never got it, sadly, we'll, you know, we'll never know that you know reality um but i think it is clearly enhanced by modern times i think that's something that hurt the trial of the chicago seven kind of comparing the two even though this is obviously this episode is drastically different than trial of chicago seven i think that is a product that got hurt by the what we've seen this year this is a product that uh project that gets enhanced by what we've seen this year i mean trial of chicago seven hurt itself jesus have you seen the script of this christ <laughs> this is fair <laughs> yeah yeah, no, not, yeah. not Sorkin's brightest hour. No, even though that, like, I don't want this to kind of devolve into a conversation about the trial of Chicago Seven, but the <laughs> film is so poorly written that you kind of start. I can't remember. There was a guy who got because um, I've watched it. Like, I don't know, like two months ago. I should have known all these all these historical names, but I keep forgetting them. There was a guy who was bound and gagged, and he had to sit in there for like seven days, um, bound and gagged. Oh, yeah, uh... yeah, that's happened. Yeah. That's that's real history. That shit, that shit happened, but he makes it look like it's just blown out of proportion because the, the whole thing plays at eleven and just makes it look ridiculous. And then people will not take it seriously because they, they yeah, say, like, oh, look at this, it's so funny. Like, oh, yeah, it's like, such a little the, funny little the thing. Real no, life, shit like this happened. I was saying, like the uh, the uh, real life event happened for like for like a few days, and it's just yeah. like a five minute sequence in the movie. He just tosses them aside narratively and just it's like, oh, we're done with you. Like we've used you as the chess piece for emotion. 
yeah yeah not yeah, good no but but yeah coming coming back to like when you say oh well like steve McQueen locked out with with this being kind of well locked out like it's it's a very terrible sort of turn of phrase because it's it's a horrible it's a horrible sort of series of events um but if you think about this he could this could be released every any year between 2015 and now and would still fit because like well we didn't well, we, we didn't see so, so many massive protests in like 2019 and 2018 whatever but there were always um, cop killings there are um, there were all there was always injustice this, stuff like this keeps happening and it's just it would have fit right away anyway so which yeah. is uh, uh, well let's just say it well times we live in need serious corrections like black Klansman was a timely piece and you know because well because of a well um, i don't want to call it a massacre but it kind of was a massacre right a guy drives into a, a, a into a crowd of protesters killing a bunch killing a bunch of them that's you know this this would have fit in in, in the same space it could play alongside the black Klansman, and you, and you could say exact same things that you know just mcqueen lucked out because this 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 thing happened which is which which should be pretty much just force us all to kind of just sit back and reflect and then elect better presidents. I guess but to I also that. clarify and to like attack my own verbiage a little bit more, I also don't think he lucked out because I think the filmmaking <laughs> strong enough to where it would play well regardless. I think these are really well-crafted yeah. pieces that evoke emotion anyway. I, I, I That's a really mean, bad but... phrase. I really <laughs> analyzing it, that was a stupid thing to say. But, you know, the general point still stands, I think. I think. I think no, no one's going to hold this against you in court. Like, this, no one's going to pull this up as evidence. But, you know, yeah, this, the, the point, point is, like, this, like in 2016, this, we would have had the same conversation, only, you know, with a different set of, with a different set of evidence to back up this claim. Right. Uh, even uh, when I brought up Babylon, again, that's almost a 40-year-old movie, but we get it played very well when I watched it last year and even think back on it now it's still a film that sadly you know almost 40 years on can still be very relevant and uh, that's it's it's, that's an issue now let's move on to red white and blue lord may you protect your servant Leroy please keep him safe for his police training attention and grant us the wisdom to accept his decision. At least this way, Dad, I can change things. Get out of my house! Out there, it is us and them. That's how it works. Start police! Come out there with no backup! Sometimes I think the earth needs to be scorched. Replanted. Something good will come of it. Red, White, and Blue spotlights the true story of Leroy Logan, who at a young age saw his father assaulted by two policemen, motivating him to join the police and change their racist attitudes from within. Jacob, why don't you start us off with this one? What were your thoughts on Red, White, and Blue? Oh, I really like it. I mean, but you know, I, I liked all of them. Um, but I would say it's probably a little bit weaker than Mangrove and definitely than Love, Lover's Rock, in my opinion. However, it's it's kind of just almost living in it, prospering on uh, John Boyega's performance in a way, and uh, I, I saw a few rea- reaction tweets on Twitter when people would be going like, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of like a bunch of cliche because you know, it kind of feels like a biopic, and that, it's kind of just, 
stated this in my review a little bit, um, where you say, okay, well, the cliches are cliches for a reason, because, well, people get stereotyped. People, people kind of just have these experiences and this, this shit like this happened. And then when you actually look into Leroy Logan's life and, you know, and when you see the scene where he stands up and says, I'm not here to make any friends. I'm here to change things from the inside, right? And then, yeah, he actually did that. He actually said, it's like, I'm, well, yeah. I'm here to do a job. We're here to, yeah. So, so, uh, or when he was just walking down the street and people would just shout at him, Judas or coconut or like some, some and some other slurs. And then, yeah, that, he experienced all this. And which to me means, okay, well, Steve McQueen knows these are cliches. He knows these are like biopic dramatic beats. Yeah. And then he, he uses them anyway, because I've, at least this, this is how it played to me. Leroy Logan's not, well, this is not a story about Leroy Logan per se. He's using him as an example that every single black police officer in Britain probably faced the idea. Every, every one of them knows what it, like, what, it, what it feels like to go into the locker room and see a racist slur written all across your door. Um, and, then, and then everyone just snickering behind because behind your back or, or 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 just having a laugh at your expense because well you're the odd one out they that this, this is an experience of thousands of people and then you know this is pretty much where the strength of this film kind of comes to me because kind of boyega is just like the the everyman guy and a historical figure to me which is um which is pretty great however you know but but it kind of just it doesn't have the same power as say mangrove because you know he kind of uses these sort of shorthand narrative techniques and then well probably maybe the 70 minute runtime kind of doesn't doesn't help as well because he doesn't have the, the extra hour to kind of just go into like a massive set piece that would bring this all together like have this anger bo boil over it, it's kind of a little bit more telegraphed but yeah it's pretty damn solid yeah no, that's kind of what i was thinking it's like he ended it like just at the point where you think uh he's he's about to do something really big you know, as, but still, like John John Boyega in this was just uh, this one played more of like a director actor relationship kind of movie where it's just all right. Here's your script. Just go, just go, go, just go, go, do your thing, and I'm gonna sit back and tell you what 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 I want. That's how this more played out because again, it felt like a, even compared to McQueen's other films, you know, Hunger, Shame, Twelve Years a Slave, Widows, it's very straightforward. Even even out of the rest of um, Small Axe, it's probably like the most straightforward thing he's done. But I, I still, as I think, you know, having it just be very straightforward to the point also drives home the point that he's trying to make with this with this particular uh, this particular film in the series. Yeah, I think that this is the film or the part of the show, whatever you want to call it, that suffers the most from its runtime. Um, I think this is demanding to be a full feature. I think there's tons of really interesting nuance, even if the story is kind of straightforward with the plot details. I think there's quite a bit of nuance here regarding, you know, one's relation to the community, one's responsibility, just the concept of trying to enter a systematically racist system and then try and change it from the inside. I think this is a very rich topic um you know i think especially in this story compared to something like black klansman where black klansman has this big kind of arc um not just emotionally but also just with plot you know there's oh these bad guys like it's very specific and kind of more focused 
um, in a plot sense. I think here there is so much you can go into. And I think that just having an hour long kind of presentation on this doesn't do the story justice. I think it's rather really good. Like, let's be clear. I think it's really solid. John Boyega, I don't think probably has ever been better. I think he is genuinely fantastic. Maybe not to the sense of the actors from Mangrove. He just doesn't have the time or the emotional scene, I guess, necessarily to like fully break out, in my opinion, like those actors. Still, he's really, really damn good in this. Um, I just think that this is something that demands to be a two hour feature. And I would love to see McQueen go on and actually make this a full feature. Cause I think there's so much rich content here. So it kind of gives you a little taste and it's a really, really good tasting, you know, taste of what this story has to offer and all of its various layers and themes. Um, but I don't think it fully uses it all. I think there is still stuff here that deserves more attention given to it. Um, so I will say I really love I really like this edition. It wasn't to the same point as Mangrove or Lover's Rock for me. This was more in the middle um, of the series for me. I mean, uh, yeah. when, when you think about this is be best way to put it, in my opinion, is basically this is a, this is two two acts out of three. Or a potential three act sort of structure when you think about this, like when you compare it to Mangrove, when you have um, Letitia Wright's uh, character. And, and Frank Critchlow, when they have what well, they get their sort of quote-unquote day in court, and they have this moment of exhilaration, I think there's another character that has, no, I think it's played on Frank Critchlow's, Critchlow's face when when they all in, um, they read uh, the jury uh, verdicts, and they say like, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, and it's all played on the guy's face, and as you know, and, and as he slowly just breaks down and starts crying, because it kind of just um, so the tables are turning for him. This this doesn't have it. It has this sort of element where he, okay, well John Boyega is kind of just the, the Leroy Logan is basically just this guy who has to always um, be a step ahead of the game. He always has to overcompensate because he knows that he's going to be underrated by his peers and by his uh, well teachers in the in the police school. So he always has to be the fastest in the on on track. He always has to be the best the smartest in the room because he's going to be judged with a bias. So <laughs> when when he's um then he goes on this sort of he responds to a call and then he has to um I think he has to uh, go they, they go into some form of like a um, factory and then he, he has to he has to just catch a bad guy and he's all by himself and he requested backup and they and, and they didn't come because well this is yeah. this is the this is the sort of a moment where, where you can kind of say this is this is the inciting incident where something should change like there should be an arc where he would either win these people over or not and this would send a message and kind of just film ends just before this sort of when they when they you know like tap the glass with his with his dad and, and the, the dad says to him you know wheels of change are slow to turn and then you know I have to respect what you're doing this is what you, in a normal film you'd expect him trying to do something and then in a Hollywood sort of in a green book type picture, he would win everybody over and everyone would go, you know, right off to, to, towards the sunset or, or, or not. He would probably just try and, and you know, it would leave stuff a bit more ambiguous, but it's kind of lacking that little art, no, little act to me, which basically just brings this half a star down. So like, let's be honest, like this is not, I'm not slagging this people, this, this film off. This is four and a half out of five, right? But yeah, this is the one thing that I'm kind of thinking like this lacks the 45 minutes 
to kind of be just as long as mangrove, I think, or maybe just well, just about just 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 below the two-hour mark, where you can have a little bit of a dramatic conclusion to this, because it kind of just ends abruptly and, uh, and leaves you staring a little bit. More. Maybe that's the point, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, because like after this came out, I looked up um, the, the story of uh, Leroy Jenkins, and it, it's it's quite a quite a story and quite a life. That's why I was really surprised. It, you know, the film ended when it did because it's like this guy did so much over there in the UK, and like it's it's just incredible. You know, we just get just just a little sliver of you know what this guy would ultimately do. But honestly, I, I do personally think it's bit of a it's bit of a uh, of a um, injustice that you no, know, it's as short as 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 short as it is. This is probably the only one I would say that the runtime could have probably been a little longer with it. I will say also speaking on abrupt and en- abrupt endings, this one had such just an ending out of nowhere um, that just left me really cold. I'll say um, there's a way to do just like an ending out of nowhere, I think. And I don't think this film necessarily accomplishes that how it wants to. Um, I was fe- I felt pretty cold regarding the ending of the film. I mean, but when you think about the conversation he has with his dad, like th- this conversation is so well written. When you, when, I mean, I have to say that I actually, ha- actually had to go and rewind it a few times because all, all throughout the season, uh, series, I did have a little bit of a problem because, well, um, many characters speak with a very strong so West Indian accent. And sometimes I'll be just, well, I'm an immigrant myself. So I kind of have to filter it through multiple layers of my brain to kind of get to certain, certain things. But it's just, well, the the way he just lay, lay, you know, he sees John Boyega is kind of pretty much almost given up, right? And then his dad was never approving of his career as a police officer because he was basically just well, he 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 was outing himself as a traitor to the community almost in everyone's eyes, and then he's he just gives him this story about well, if if I saw you digging graves and you didn't have education. And that's the only thing you could do. I'd have a problem with this, right? But you know, but if you have an education, because he was he was a biochemist, I think, or who was or, or he was training towards a PhD in biochemistry or molecular biology or something like this, or forensic science, I think so. Uh, and he gave it this gave this all up. He said, "You had all the options in the world. You had like even as a black man in Britain, you had quite a lot on well, quite a lot of options for you, and you chose to do this. That's conviction." So I have to respect this because you you are driven by something else than just the desire to have a life or a career or whatever. You are changing the world. And, and I just have to remind you that, you know, it takes a quite a lot of time to change the world because people are stupid in general. And then, you know, and, and it's very difficult to change people's minds. And then this is and this is where you kind of just need the third act to kind of just for him to go go and just have this one last push. And it kind of just doesn't have it. Yeah, I think that's one of the more moving kind of conversations within the film, especially towards the beginning half of the film when he's starting to kind of think about pursuing this career. Um, he, you know, there's a lot of conversation surrounding, you know, his voice and his inspiration and his drive and how he kind of has like a responsibility to use that. Um, and then people are also upset when he tries to change it in the way that he sees fit. Um, I think that's probably one of the more interesting and moving dynamics within this film that really, really touched me. Yeah, no, like his his relationship with his family. I mean, you could see that was very like one of those very important, um, one of the more important um, 
trying to think of the right word for um, one of the more, I guess, the more important aspects of the film, which is still his relationship with his family, in particular his relationship with his father. Because you know, again, like like uh, like um, uh, Jacob had said, you no, know, that that ending scene was it, it was no no. Even though it was a very abrupt ending, that was a very well done scene. And there's how 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 it just you know, sits with the two of them at that table. And they're just pouring the drinks and talking. And it was you know it's again this shows how you know, how you know, a simple scene can just be so profound when done you know, the right way. I mean, this not not this occurs to me now, but, but because uh, Hunger is one of my favorite films of all time, anyway, and then this is my favorite of his as a well Stephen McQueen's films, and then actually basically this last little scene at a table when they are just sharing a bottle of something, um, uh, <laughs> it's basically just almost a, like a mirror image to the final sort of conversation between Michael Fassbender and a priest in a, in Hunger, where. Michael Fassbender is basically just telling him that he's going to go on a hunger strike. I mean, no, no, he's already been on a hunger strike, but he's going to pursue it until either something changes or he dies. So, so, and this is played sort of in one unbroken shot, uh, one unbroken take for, I want to say like 11 to 12 minutes of a conversation where he's just smoking cigarettes and just keep telling the priest that this is something he must do because there's more important things in the world. There's just his own well-being or his family's well-being. He's fighting for his country in a way. This is his sort of roar of patriotism towards his fellow men. Yeah, and then this is basically the same thing where he's, but the sort of roles are reversed because we think John Boyega would be the Michael Fassbender in this scenario and he's given up. He's kind of like, no, I don't, I don't know what if I want to do this. I think I've made a mistake. And this is his dad being the sort of, reversal of the priest saying no you need to do this this is like don't give up right now it gets hard but it's gonna get better it might not get better for you but it's gonna get better for everybody else so you know this is you've signed up to be a martyr so that that's that's the deal you're getting and then you'll 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 be you know you'll be a saint one day but you you have to kind of just die a torturous death to become one. So there it is. Clink and then and then for, for, for some for some reason just credits roll. And I'm just thinking, no, please don't, please don't, please don't load credits. I wanna see this what happens next. <laughs> so yeah, it's just a I don't know, that's just the curse of this being uh, an anthology series, I suppose. I wonder if they would, if he would change ending, considering that's how he ended Hunger. And I haven't personally seen Hunger, so good to hear that perspective. <gasps> uh, I know, I know, I know. I just, I just watched okay. it earlier this week, and you gotta, you gotta watch. Holy Christ! Like, well, you need to see Hunger. Like, I'm gonna tell you that much. It's just, if, if for for a history lesson on British, Britain, on British and Irish relationships in in Northern Ireland, which is tumultuous in its own. But you, you, like when you think about well that you know like the West Indian community had it had it you know like Ireland has been conquered so hard that they forgot their own language, right? So so when you think about this, this this, this he under, he basically feels like the symmetry between the black communities in Britain and the Irish communities in Northern Ireland are basically the same, in 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 a way. Um, it's just oh you need to see this. It's a masterpiece, and it was his debut, I think, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's oh. even Stephen Crazier part. Now I have to check it out. God, I'll put it on the watch list. Anyway, it's not I the am thing in the world to watch, but hey. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I sat through do a little. I'll be fine. Um, different. That's not the kind of. <laughs> I, I'm, aware, I'm aware, but still. Um, let's just say. Let's just say there's a scene where they wash them, and oh, um, I don't want to be washed like this. Yeah, there there was a lot of scenes that were that yeah. were just very they're, they're they're really rough, but like there's yeah. just so much beauty in the film as well. Yeah. But um, I find it very curious that he ended a feature film with a very same like kind of emotional matter that he ended this. And I'm curious if this was a feature film, let's say. I'm wondering if he would expand past that or if he would still use that as the end point. I mean, that's just one of those like questions we'll never know. But I do find it interesting to hear that he ended a feature film in the very same, like very similar matter. I mean, it, well, I don't want to spoil the ending of Hunger, but it, it, it goes past the conversation. Okay. It goes past the conversation because, well, well, Bobby Sands... Uh, well, it, well, you'd have to read up on, on him. I, like, if you, if you don't know about him, and then you're going to watch Hunger this way, it's probably better for me not to tell you anything. Just go and watch it, and and just take it in as it is, and then read up on Bobby Sands and see see what what was going on. Read about the maze, the the, the infamous prison in Belfast. Well, that's not in Belfast, but you know, in Northern Ireland, where you can still go and visit. I think you can still visit parts of it. I think. Um, or you know about the troubles in in northern Ireland. It's just, it's just a beautiful beautiful and somewhat forgotten piece of history that just illustrates the um, British relationship with abuse, so to speak, and then British and, and the British sort of historical um, view of themselves as the conquerors, as the uh, the Ubermenschen in a way, like the sort of like you think Germans had invented it now. Let's move on to the penultimate episode in the series, Alex Wheatel. For me, it was always about the music. Uprising, there's an uprising. There ain't no work and we have no shilling. We can't take no more of this suffering. So we riot in a big star. We are the small X. Sharpen to cut you down. Having spent his childhood in a mostly white institutional care home with no love or family, Alex Weedle finally finds not only a sense of community for the first time in Brixton, but his identity and ability to grow his passion for music and DJing. When he is thrown in prison during the Brixton uprising of 1981, he confronts his past and sees a path to healing. Jakob, why don't you start us off again with this one? What are your thoughts on Alex Weedle? Well, this one's this one's interesting. Uh, well, they're all interesting, but this this one's kind of interesting in a way because um, I think this is the most sort of self-reflective um, out of all. I mean, not most self-reflective, but it's kind of most ambiguous of all of them because you'd think there's there is always a dynamic in 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 all five of them where there is the black community in Britain and there is the white community in Britain and the interface between them, right? And it's here, but it's he's almost criticizing um, the the way certain sort of niches in the West Indian communities in Britain would kind of just lead people astray, because if, if, if you go back to Alex Beetle's sort of biography, he, he was a guy who was abandoned as a child. He was uh, brought into foster care 
in in social care and in, in in the British system of social care. And he was this is where he was basically subjected to racial abuse because he was growing up in white families who just uh, you know they 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 didn't really treat him with the respect he deserved or with the attention he deserved as a troubled child from a well orphaned child, right? Like this is you know he didn't get the love, he didn't get the respect, he didn't get the attention that other kids got, right? So he ends up on the street, taken in by quote unquote hoodlums, right? Like this is the sort the, the sort of weird niche of the community because they're, they're just operating by, you know, like selling drugs or stealing stuff and, um, and well, basically just well, so well, always sort of against the law in a way. So, and he has to go to prison to, 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 to meet a guy who was a Rastafarian to base, who, who taught him how to read. Yeah, he just some here, here's some books like read about your read about your people, read about well, read about you know uh, history. You know, think about things. And don't don't just follow. so you just realize that there's there's you know there's your own roots as a family. There's your own roots as a community living, and there's the historical sort of collection of everything that brought you into this place in the world. And then um, he almost just points a finger. At certain aspects of his own his own community, and saying you need to we need to do better than this. We need to teach our children in, a, in, in better so so that they don't go and you know end up in prison. There is racism that will put them in prison because it's so we need to try even harder to overcome this. And then this is why I kind of like this sort of a bit more because it's it's a, it's a bit more nuanced. It's again, it's, it's suffering from the seventy-minute runtime because it kind of telegraphs a few things in there. But it, it it's almost almost one of the most thought-provoking entries in the anthology, in my opinion. Yeah, no, because I thought it was very interesting how uh, when when Alex first got to the uh, to the community, started meeting everybody, how uh, he was having a very hard time uh, making that making that transition from you no know, growing up around mainly you no know, white people, white families to being around people who is who are of his you know, skin color and of his own nationality and everything. So you no, know, there's and also I also found that my might be in the, in the minority of this. I also found it be probably a little funnier than like a lot of the other a lot of the other um, features, especially out of what what McLean has done, just because of this kind of like culture clash of this is how I am of but no this is who you really are kind of dynamics coming at coming coming in um to play there it is definitely charismatic you know this one carries that kind of stands on that tightrope very well between being too humorous and too lighthearted at times while also carrying that deeper more darker emotional weight to it um you mentioned that it suffers Jakob, from it, the 70 minute runtime i think it does for a variety of reasons mainly i think though because i just found the filmmaking within this film to be a little bit uneven at times uh, from the actual layout of the film, jumping between various stages of his life um, to the sequence in the middle that is a sequence that's very thoughtful, where I believe it's one of his writings and it's to a backdrop and talking about this fire that happened and him kind of reflecting on different events within the community. Um, I think each individual piece worked. I really love every single part. Like this is a very thoughtful film. I think it all works rather well. I don't know if it came together into a coherent 70 minute gut punch like I would want it to. Um, I think this is like a lot of great starts to a feature, 
Um, I do agree, though, probably either it needed drastically reorganized or just a longer runtime to truly flesh itself out. Because I think out of all these editions, this one is the one that feels the most messy for me. Still really good. Like when I say like this is one of the worst ones, you know, that is in the context of the series, which it's is like, all around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's very kind of trivial. Uh, a lot of these complaints that I'm bringing up yeah. with these. Um, but I do think this one is rather messy compared to the other ones that are all rather focused. I mean, there's so many things in there. Like, it's almost too much in there. Like, when you think about you could you could make a film out of the little dynamic when he goes into a barbershop, right, as a kid. Like, so he just, okay, he, he gets taken into foster, foster care by this dude who just tells him, this is your room. Here's the rules on the, on the wall. Learn them. Any questions? Very good. And he just leaves. And that's, they're all, always, like, he doesn't give a shit. And so, and then he just gets taken taken in by the, these other boys, and just brought into a West Indian barbershop where everyone speaks with very strong accents. And you know that these people are immigrants. They 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 were born in Jamaica. They were born in like Barbados and places like this. Um, uh, and then he, and they say, "Oh, what's your name?" And he goes like, "My name's Alex. I'm from Surrey." Like, and they're like, "No, no, no. You're not from like." They're trying to kind of beat the Britishers out out of him, which which I think McQueen's criticizing. Because he said, "Well, you need to you need to be both. Like you need to know that your your roots are in Jamaica. You need to know that your roots are in uh, wherever, like in Africa or because I think um, uh, Alex's parents were. He sa he says his parents are Nigerian, or he knows that his mom is Nigerian. I think so. He 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 knows where the lineage is. He just doesn't understand it, but he sees himself as British, which is, which should be celebrated as a good thing. Well, I know this this is where my parents are coming from, but I'm here now." And I'm a synthesis of everything. And they're trying to beat this out of him, which I think, you know, um, McQueen's kind of like saying, no, please don't. Because, and he just goes on to say, well, this is what happens when, when, when you do this, because we just kind of don't know your, your roots, because people tell you what your roots are, but you need to kind of internalize, you need to understand this. And then it's almost telegraphed at the end because he just steals a bunch of papers from uh, the Department of Social Care. And then he's trying to figure out whose mom and dad are. Uh, and then I think eventually, I think I read up on this. I think he reunited with his dad. Eventually, he found them in America. So I think he was essentially abandoned as a child, which is tragic in its own right. But this is where yeah. I think the 70 minute runtime kind of just doesn't help because you'd like to see this reunification right? and see, you know, like him asking the question, Why did you leave me? What's happened? What am I, am I, you know, what happened? You know, this is a, you know, this is again a two and a half hour film that you kind of want to see. It just kind of ends before it before it should end, you know? Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of weird that this this one ended with the little like the title cards at the end of like oh, after after this happened, you know, he went off and did all these things, but he didn't use that same ending with uh with a uh, red, white, and blue, which I mean I can kind of understand, but again, these are two people who who have lived very lived lives and though they have done a lot of things so i just think it's kind of odd to have that kind of disconnect of this is the rest of this guy's life versus we're just going to end this guy's story here i do think it's possibly quite like 
this is a not only just a real person, but someone who's still alive. Like he's still publishing work. He's still very much so living his life. So you always got to kind of factor in what do they want to be shared? What do they want their narrative to be on film? You know, this is not something where McQueen can just go through and, you know, pick their, you know, pick through their lives. You know, I'm sure he has some kind of urgency and kind of say in what happens. So I, I do say, you know, McQueen, not that I know, you know, what happened behind the scenes, but there is that extra added factor here where Alex Weedle, you know, still alive still doing it so yeah but you'd be kind of hard pressed to think it's like what was what does the film say, say about alex weedle doing today nothing i can you like you'd think is he a dj is he uh is this is this his thing now no he's a he's a novelist he like wrote like 20 books but he, like he couldn't infer this from the film because it kind of just leaves before he makes that change like the only thing is <laughs> you know what I think the only kind of hint of this is when the Rastafarian who just suffers from a terrible bowel disease for like half of the film, <laughs> which is, I think this is, this may be part of the film, what, part of the reason why it's kind of funny because like toilet humor is always funny, but he gives him a book and says like about the black Jacobins or something like this. And he's like, yeah, read this. And then you think, ah, oh, that's it. That's, that's where he just makes a turn, but he kind of just finishes before, before he kind of just even, he says, oh, I want to write a book. And, and he just gets off the bench and he, he goes away. So with that, let's move on to our final film to talk about today. Last but certainly not least, it's education. They say our children are too loud, too slow, or too lively. The school system has a policy of targeting our children. There is a deeply rooted cultural bias. As a collective, we stand a chance. Education is the coming-of-age story of a 12-year-old Kingsley who has a fascination for astronauts and rockets. When Kingsley is pulled to the headmaster's office for disrupting the class, he discovers he's being sent to a school for those with special needs. Distracted by two jobs, his parents are unaware of the unofficial segregation policy at play, preventing many Black children from receiving the education that they deserve until a group of West Indian women take matters into their own hands. I can start us off today with education to peel back the layers of me just being a film critic. I am in the education field. I work in the education field. I am going to school right now to become an educator. I actively think about the shortcomings of education, specifically in American society, granted, but I think about it quite a bit. Um, This is a film that really touched me and really kind of connected with me on a deeper level because of that. You know, McQueen has been very vocal in the past about his uh, experience in education and his systematic racism he experienced um, within education. Um, And you can just tell there's a real passion and a real truth and authentic Uh, voice behind education. Uh, Not only are the young actors genuinely fantastic, um, I believe the only other project the main kid was in was in Jingle Jangle this year on Netflix, which was genuinely atrocious, not to piss everyone off. Uh, Everyone lied to me and said that film was great. It was not. Um, But he is genuinely quite fantastic here. Um, And I think the story overall, you know, we talked about emotion, we talked about empathy, we talked about, you know, connecting to the human emotion and the range of emotions this film was able to create from anger to this tragic sense of this boy um, who, you know, luckily does get the support, but also thinking about all the kids who don't get the support to rise above this systematic just oppression of their 
thoughts and a systematic oppression of support and potential. Um, you know, it's really moving stuff. And I just found that this was what like low key, I think one of the better entries in the small act series. I'm not seeing a lot of people talk about this one. It didn't go to film festivals. It didn't get this huge release per se. Um, but I think this has, you know, quite a bit of emotional power behind it. Maybe not as much as Mangrove, but I think it's definitely up there for me, but also I just have that personal connection to it. So I'm curious to see what you guys think of it. Yeah, no, this was one of those ones that was like, it was a great ending for the, for the series as a whole. I think it just really drives home a lot of the themes that you know, he was trying to convey throughout the entire series. I think just having a story that mainly just focuses on kids and though just kids growing up through this system, I think was a was a very smart move on on his end. But again, again, I know you were talking about education. Uh, made me think about you know back when I was going to school and you know, kind of having those teachers that you know you know there might not have been you know, the issues like like were that were on display here or were even you no know, issues prevalent you no know, thirty years ago or so. No, they really made me think about you no know, teachers that you know might have. Know, picked on me for you no know, some whatever reason they wanted to do that for so again this was something that kind of you know, kind of hit close especially though know, those scenes where you know he was struggling to read those were you no know, granted I've been very fortunate not to have those kind of issues but you no know, seeing that you no know, I've, I've seen that before I can only imagine what kind of struggle that would be so you know this was one of those ones that just really I really did hit. And also this, the the sixteen millimeter the the sixteen millimeter cinematography and this was just absolutely gorgeous. No, I definitely agree with this. It's um it's a very powerful ending to this. And um, I've been sitting on a review for this for now five days because I know I know it premiered in America only this uh, this Friday I think yesterday. Yeah. So so um <laughs> because it's it will be almost too easy to go and say to get, just focus on the education part of this the the sort of okay well there's the um the, the dynamic between teachers and principals and 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 kids from ethnic uh, communities who are basically just picked on and say oh yeah you you're, you're, you can't read you, you know, or whatever and then that means you like, we, we don't we can't be bothered helping you so here you go go to special school right um but there's an there's an additional sort of a conversation to be had in there which i'm kind of just wrestling with because i don't quite know how to put it in words and then maybe hopefully this conversation will kind of help me because i'm um i'm thinking to the like when you think this little boy kingsley who i think is a fictional character but the story is well the, well, the, the story isn't real per se but you know it's it's pretty much rooted in stark reality like this is happening the, the little booklet that ladies distributing in little meetings in the saturday schools these are a thing by the way saturday, saturday schools are kind of a thing for other communities as well like i'm sending i send my my own daughter to a saturday polish school for that exact reason to kind of learn for for her for them to kind of learn in their um to, and, and about their, their own heritage in in a sort of like a little in class environment as well but um when you think uh about the uh context of the story and so why why is this boy uh, picked on why is he wh why is he behind it's because his well like if you think about uh, the, the white kids in in, the, in this class so they all they all probably have uh, probably working parents but their their parents are working jobs they probably allow them to have some time with them right because they don't they don't have to like like the film starts with his mom coming back from work as a i think as a nurse 
So he's co she's coming back from a night shift to basically just meet in the door with the dad, who's who's basically never there because he's always working. Have they have a meal together? All the, the kids just run off to school, and she just has a shower, has a little bit like two minutes of sitting down on the bed, gathers herself, puts on some clothes, and she goes somewhere else to clean an apartment or somewhere. She just goes from from a job to a job and then to another job. So when she, when is she supposed to find time to even figure out that her kid does not know how to read or to help him learn? Because learning is in, a lot of learning kind of happens at home. And then this is where the, this is kind of like a little, another layer of conversation about the sort of racial discrimination because, well, it, because people in ethnic sort of minorities and, and the, this community are disadvantaged in such a way that they cannot afford to have just one job because they would be not they wouldn't be able to provide food on the, on on the table so they have to sacrifice this and then they're being penalized their children are being penalized they're being sent to special schools and they have and the circle sort of repeats yeah so it's the almost i want to say his, historically it's probably not the strongest but it's like thematically it's probably the smartest of, out of all all five because i'm it's five days since i've seen this and i'm still just processing this because it's such a multi-layered sort of experience it's such a beautifully complex story that just touches on 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 a very difficult subject that well well it's still happening because even well in america you still have this where there are people working like going from a job to a job and then and then they never see their kids and then their kids they're underperforming school because they don't they don't have the super they don't have the uh, motivation in the house they don't have the sort of face-to-face -face time with their mom or dad or or, or or their guardians or whoever. And and stuff like this happens. And it's just, I'm, I'm five days removed from this. I'm still pissed off, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, yeah. so this, this should be a testament to how, how great this film is, but I can't possibly imagine how to talk about this without just, you know, or writing a review that, that's not like two and a half thousand words about, you know, that that kind of just looks like a deconstructive sort of critique of the British educational system and the entire sort of economical dynamic between communities. It's yeah, it's brilliant in a way, but it's it's almost kind of too too much to fit again in the seventy-minute runtime because it's and well, but it's it's kind of just it, it's kind of different than Alex Wheatle because Alex Wheatle is kind of just these little things kind of just. To, tossed into the story but this this thing is just telling you a very simple story and, and in, when you scratch at this and you you see there's a whole ocean of thematic content in there i think it really says yeah. something that we are watching this film and we see the shortcomings of her not having a relationship like a good like face-to-face -face relationship with her parents on the fact that he can't read which you think would be the school's responsibility to figure out and learn minus the fact that this also means he doesn't have a strong like necessarily like emotional like connection support system there even outside of academics with his parents i mean once you find those layers i think it is rather disgusting how the education system has failed children not to mention i mean even homework and stuff like not to get into a rant about education here but like i think it's genuinely one of the largest shortcomings in modern society i think it's genuinely genuinely revolting how it handles itself um and just completely fails to achieve 
pretty much anything at this point. Um, and I think education just handles that those layers wonderfully. I do agree. I would like to see this evolve into a longer runtime, but I think it's focused enough. And I think the story lends itself to where this does it justice. Yes, it could be evolved or enhanced by going longer and being expanded on. But I think this runtime does the story justice to where I think this is satisfying for me. I don't feel like I need a longer version, even if I could get one and I'd be completely happy with it. Um, I think this is the one that probably lends itself, I think, best to the shorter runtime other than Lover's Rock. But as far as like having a solid narrative that you're following and really trying to, you know, get a story out there, I think this one works rather well, at least for me. Yeah, no, like I think, no, it, even though it's only like 60 minutes long and it, the themes are very much there. It's, it's not even like you need to look very hard for the themes. They are very much there. Just how, again, just this simplicity is just always down to simplicity when it comes to Steve McQueen. And it's just how simply he conveys these very big emotional ideas. You know, it's, it's just, it's just a wonder, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we have a filmmaker like this who's, you know, capable of doing these kind of, who's capable and willing to, to do these kind of films because you know, not a lot of things are getting made like this. And, you know, a story about how, frankly how shitty as the education system can be just about anywhere in the world you know that's a story that, that needs to be told and just needs to be heard by everybody yeah i mean no, no, well there's so much more in there well you, you could probably say it's like this is like dangerous minds but kind of just written and directed by someone who knows what they're talking about uh, but but when you think about there's so much in there like even like if, if you just take the mum and dad sort of in there, because well, you think, well, there's there's this dynamic of, okay, well, the, the, the school knows that the guy doesn't know how to read. He's what, I think nine or 10. And, they, and they still go, just whatever, not our problem, right? Because they just see him as inferior. So they'd rather, and then, well, I don't even, I would, I would lend the benefit of a doubt towards the uh, the headmaster of the school or the teachers i mean maybe not the teachers but the headmaster who goes and says well uh we don't have resources to do this um there's this policy that the government in a very racist way has devised so we might as well use it and, it, and it's not my problem so you could say that he's just passing the buck on, in a way by saying oh yeah let's send him to to another school and then he's also solving a problem for the school because schools are funded based on their at least in in the case schools are funded based on on their um, test results so if you say like oh like, you know if, if they remove a student who's underperforming there's the cumulative test results will look better on paper so they'll get more money so it's almost like a very cynical way of looking at this that may not even have sort of the race element sort of on its face in there it's it's ingrained in this in the policy but the, like you could probably say that well maybe the principal is kind of like well if i can get rid of a student that's uh, underperforming and send him to a special call so be it and then it kind of probably you know, I, I well i convinced myself this is at least partly true because in the special school not all kids are black or from there there's just a whole array of, of children some of them who are just there because they're, you know, for that reason, as Kingsley is, and some of them, you know, they're just like, we'll say, white kids who are, who are also kind of just they don't know how to read at the age of eleven, right? Probably with the same sort of problems, or they will have some educational problems that their parents also don't have the time to, uh, to deal with because they also work shitty jobs, right? 
But if, but if you look at say like the mom character, which to me is the the most important in there and, and the most interesting because she works these multiple jobs, and when she's presented with this problem first, she just hides it. Like even if this woman kind of gives her a book, she just hides it behind like a picture of Jesus. It's like oh, yeah, it's just, because she kind of still believes that if you things will sort sort themselves out because you know you work hard you do well eventually things will happen for you and then she just re has to wake up to this that you know the, the game's rigged against them that you know you need to actually go and speak up you need to fight for yourself because otherwise they will just you know the when the policy is written in a way that disadvantages you well there's you you, you can work your ass off and then you still you still be at the at the at the bottom rung in the society because well you're supposed, but it, it's you're written in to, to to be there anyway. So it's impossible for you for you to play with you know to adhere to the rules of the game and win because you're, the odds are stacked against you. And I think this is why it's kind of like yeah another reason like this is yet another like a thousand word essay on 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 why you know education is such an inter interesting film to to actually to have made and to and to present to, to the public in 2020. I'm really happy you brought up that point about how UK schools are funded because in America, at least my slice of America, uh, funding goes based on attendance. So I think you can even get into an interesting conversation there regarding like, would schools, even if they couldn't accommodate a student, you know, truly here, would they give up a student to go like to get the more help because then they're losing funding where here, obviously they're very willing to get rid of a student. Obviously funding doesn't apply to like attendance and it more applies to test scores. So that's really interesting. I know, I know like, here in Florida, I'm pretty sure they changed it to where it's, I, I know, no, teachers pay is based on test scores. I think school is still based on attendance and whatnot, but, but again, no, just, I remember, you know, when they started, you know, switching more to us just doing standardized testing and then just start teaching us more about that. No, they, I mean, we were, we were pissed. Teachers were pissed. Students were pissed, but, you know, that's just the way the system works and that it's really unfortunate that's how it works you know, I, remember, I remember like when they had a, a no child left behind uh, left behind here so you know I was in high school with kids who, who couldn't read you know we're all like 16 years old and you know thinking back on it now it's it's disheartening thinking that you know we're 16 years old and we can't read you know, that's it's it's disappointing to think this how much you know, systems that should be working for us ultimately fail us in a way that that should not be the case. Oh yeah, I mean, in, uh, to to just expand on this comment that I made, uh, I mean, it, it's a bit more complex than just test results, but basically just Ofsted, which is Office for Standards and Education in Britain, they do these sort of. I think every two or three years they will assess every school and they will give them scores. And based on these scores, it based well every state's state's uh, school because in in Britain you also have private schools which are you know they they don't well they're just them for themselves right and the religious schools which are also a separate kettle of fish but well yeah but you can have like a school that's um, I don't know it it will be Church of England school and they're they're kind of outside of the system they can do they can do whatever they want a little bit and they have their own cur curriculum. Or you, by the same token, you have you can have an, like a Muslim school that has their own curriculum. It's 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 a mess, but but state schools they have their own catchment areas which are, which are geographically defined, and then based on their results, their Ofsted scores, they kind of play into how desirable certain areas are. So 
in a way, if you think about it, you're a headmaster in a school and, and, you're, and you're kind of trying to figure out how to get the best out of your children, you have a hand in um, playing with the housing market because when you have a desirable area, like my, I live just on the outskirts or a, or, or, of a catchment area uh, of, a, of a very good school and my daughter is going there. But I kid you not, I, I drive my daughter off to drop, to drop her off. I've, I've, I've learned to kind of just, I mean, I didn't have to learn this, but you kind of just have to realize that, you know, when you drop, her, drop your kid off, let's go with your little piddly ass car. And then all the kids are just getting, getting out of Range Rovers and, and daddy's little Porsches or Mercedes S-Class. And like this, this is the type of neighborhood I live on the outskirts of, right? So, and the school being there, kind of just plays this up like there are areas in certain cities especially but in smaller towns it's not that prevalent because this it's less density but in t in cities like i think there's uh a mate of mine who was um his boss was moving to glasgow uh, as a professor so he when you were they were finding, looking for a house to buy you could see there's a house that's you could let's say let's just say for sake of argument it's worth two hundred thousand pounds and then you just move one block no not even like one street down it's hundred and fifty thousand pounds so there's a there's a 25 percent difference in price because at that little street there's a catchment area for a good school finishes and a catchment area for a shitty school starts so people don't want to live there they want to live in a, in, in a more desirable area which drives the house prices up um which which kind of just almost enforces reinforces this this sort of behavior of like you if this thing wasn't in the 70s but but, but now we could make a or if this policy was was now this this would be um a flagship conservative policy to just basically just get rid of all the troublesome kids like if all the black kids or brown kids or whoever are kind of in the way because they, they, their parents can't can't afford a tutor or whoever or like you know ex extracurricular classes for the kids to keep up so be it that this they they would be just sacrificed in order to kind of just get get their little buddies an extra money on the side on playing out on, on speculating on the housing market it's disgusting but that's pretty much how it's it, it, for some reason education is a, in here is, is a part of something bigger and part of a financial market almost it's 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 sick but yeah which I know in America that we have similar issues because systematically there's been oppression, <laughs> which in which like neighborhoods have high populations of people of color. And then that leads to a whole thing. Like it's very layered. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to, I'm going to just totally ignore the statement on standardized testing. Cause we would be here for two hours. Um, but <laughs> yeah. then there's also the conversation within the film, uh, like actually the history that you're learning and how it's been whitewashed and how they don't really teach proper black uh, history. And I know this has been a conversation very relevant in America, uh, President Donald Trump, fuck him, number one, but number two, uh, has tried to I'm do like patriotic, <laughs> thank God, uh, has um, uh, instituted like patriotic learning that doesn't teach like proper black voices. I know from a queer perspective, LGBT history has been a huge fight and a huge topic of conversation in recent years. But I think like it speaks to the power of this film and the success that we've had this just, anal you know, a, um, 
you know, conversations surrounding education, breaking down the various fundamentals and various conversations based on this film. Like, I think, yes, this is a narrative about this kid, but ultimately it's trying to be a deconstruction of education. I think simply the fact that we've transitioned into a whole conversation about education means this film is doing something right, right? It's captivated us. It's inspired us in some way to think critically about the subject. And we all have these different perspectives. So I think for on a very fundamental level in that sense, this film is doing its job very, very well. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's only it's only a sixty minute film, so you, know, you would think you know not a lot can happen in sixty minutes, but obviously a lot did happen in sixty minutes. If you know we're still going on about about educational systems. Oh no, but then there's there's so much to be minded here. Like there's when when you think about like, like I know there's I mean it's a very important point that he's touching, especially in, in the end when 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 you have when they show. They had to well these people with this sort of this community had to devise their own sort of Saturday schooling system to bring them their kids up to speed on their roots, right? You know, so that they would know where they come from and that then their knowledge of where they come from wouldn't um, be sort of well, there's a scene in there where I think uh, someone's at, that lady teacher in the Saturday school is like asking kids what they know about their own history as so you know like the uh, in, well as black people right as, uh, and they'll say well what do you know about your history and then and then all they say is we used to be slaves um and then she just says well do you know about this do you know about this queen that king do you know about zulus do you about know about this no you don't like who's who's teaching you this nobody because well there's this old old saying that history is written by the winners and occasionally the French, as some would say, um, but but say if if the educational system is devised by people by say the quote unquote the, the the white community in Britain, of course they would probably just favour that kind of history. So it's it, well, it's incumbent on us as a society to demand that certain things be brought into the national curriculum as well, to, so that you at least give kids uh, a bit of an inkling. Yeah, there's there's this bit of history. Go and read up on this. But there's also it's also incumbent on us. Say it's say if I want to my daughter to know about the Polish kings from the 15th century and know about the fact that you know like Poland used to be a massive Commonwealth and it had um, the first constitution in Europe on uh, and and second one only about after the Americans. You know about you know there's plenty of things that sort of my ancestors have done that I will not be taught in an English school because there's there's no incentive to do so. So it's my job and it's my job as a as a Polish community to do so. And it's good that it's kind of just highlighted in there that there's this little place you can send a kid and they will teach them or show them a, a few things and, and, and just open the world of, of their own sort of heritage to them. And this, this is great because, you know, if you don't know your, your roots, if you, then you can't, you know, grow, you, you can't grow because, you know, what kind of a tree would you, would you be, right? So it's it's... Yeah, again, it's like it's a sixty-minute little film, and then we're talking about stuff like this. It's like, ah, oh god, this is going to be a five-star review. I'm, I'm telling you. And just to close out our discussion on the Small Axe series, let's just go around quickly and just kind of give our overall thoughts. Obviously, I think we've got most of our opinions out going through each individual episode. But I'll just start us off and say this is a really strong project from Steve McQueen. Um, I think that this is obviously enhanced by the times we're living in, but I think this is just a really just 
impressive collection of films. I think a lot of directors, if they had this ambitious goal of creating five separate stories of substance, you know, you would expect them to drop the ball somewhere or take it easy on a couple films. But I think each one of these films not only plays an important part building the, a thematic kind of patchwork quilt of this community and various issues within society, um, but each one individually tells a worthwhile story. And even Lover's Rock, which has a weaker narrative, has something to say and it plays an important role, I think, in bringing this whole um, series together. You know, um, I really hope people check this out. I know the first three films got a lot of attention. They came out at various film festivals. Um, Alex Weedle, really good. And I think education, like this conversation legitimately might have bumped it up to being like, it definitely bumped it up, probably a whole star um, in my review. Like, I think this is genuinely Welcome. maybe not a masterpiece. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll thank the education system for being so shitty that it just made me pissed off. Um, I don't think this is necessarily like, I wouldn't say overall a masterpiece. You know, I, I use that term very rarely. Um, I think it's damn impressive though. I think this is probably the best thing Steve McQueen has done for me personally. Um, I know a lot of people connect to a lot of his films very more, you know, on a deeper level than I do. Um, but I think this is wildly impressive and I'm happy that this is so accessible. It's on Amazon in America. It got a release through BBC in the UK. You know, definitely check these out. These are not only just diverse voices that deserve to be heard, but I think they spark just so interest such interesting conversations and thoughts and they're all so relevant um and i think they speak to like the uh, authentic real relevant look at the human experience um and just you know where we are socially um in these big ways for such focused stories that really touched me and i'm i really genuinely love uh the series yeah no it was, it was definitely probably one of the better things to to come out of 2020 in general but, I mean, it's just, I think, again, Steve McQueen's just probably outdid himself with this one. I mean, he, he has an Oscar, but I think he's, this might just be probably better than, than 12 Years a Slave. You know, I think the, the everybody, the, the cast from all of them were absolutely great. Forgot to bring it up earlier, but I think Shai uh, Cole from uh, Alex Weedle in give such a great performance in that I think this was his debut performance as well. So I think it was just, just absolutely incredible work. Um, no, I mean, I think a lot has been said about, uh, about this. And um, even though a lot of Steve McQueen's films for me are five star affairs and I like some of them a bit more, like 12 years a slave, I think I like more and hunger. I definitely like more as a standalone piece of filmmaking. I kind of, I have absolutely zero problems referring to the Small Axe series or anthology series as this man's magnum opus. I think that's it's a very important piece of filmmaking, very in interesting sort of set of stories and themes and a, song, a sort of almost like a pinnacle of everything he's been working towards. So there is this sort of idea of talking about the David versus Goliath struggle of different peoples and then celebrating the sort of uh, vibrancy of the West Indian community in Britain and getting, bringing all this together as like basically bringing a community together to fight for something not, not necessarily against something in that if that makes any sense. So he's making a brave political statement the way say Spike Lee would make He's very angry. He's very furious. He's very sort of convicted in the in the sort of 
way he's tackling these teams. But he's almost because you know, like Spike Lee would 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 is almost adversarial in a way. He he he's the Malcolm X of cinema, whereas I think now Steve McQueen would be the Martin Luther King of cinema. If you know, if you think about this sort of dynamic between these two characters, he's the he's this guy who can bring people from all all across this the political and societal spectrum together to fight for a cause. Whereas Spike Lee is more likely to champion very specific corner of that cause, and I really love this sort of relationship with cinema he has. It's amazingly written, a beautifully directed, and performances he gets out of these beautiful actors is just amazing. Like John Boyega has never been better than than this, and I know he's. I think he's. He's almost like a political activist now nowadays, and I think Disney's probably just severed his their relationship with, me, with him as well. I think, which is a a bit of a scandal. Um, like there's, it's it, it's a celebration of everything that kind of just you know of cinema, of storytelling, of 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 the of what this community is, and it's and it's equally an indictment of, of this racial segregation. It's still, go, it's still going on. And then the fact that we can have a two hour long conversation that probably would probably go on in, into an, an eight hour sort of conversation quite easily is a testament to that. And I'm, I'm, I would be happy to bring this whole five little episodes and, and make them the first top five sort of entries of my top 10 list if I, if, if I had to. I wouldn't have any problems against this. It's great piece of filmmaking. And to round out Clappercast, we like to end on the crew's latest film recommendations. I can start off this week. Uh, so we're in this really like chaotic time. It's the end of the year and it gets to the point where I'm looking at my watch list before I get to my top 10 of the year or top whatever of the year because I change every year. Um, and I see there's like 70 films I need to catch up on. So it's like, oh shit, I better start watching these. So I'm just watching tons and tons and tons of new cinema. Um, there's tons of great stuff. I'd highly recommend you check out my letterbox or Twitter, not to self-plug, but I do give opinions there. Um, one documentary that I really want to point out is the fight um i've been championing quite a bit of documentaries this year i think this is a legendary year for the subject and i think the fight is genuinely one of the best um it's about five aclu lawyers they're fighting for civil liberties against the trump administration but the documentary is not only wildly engaging in the fight for civil liberties for the lgbt community women's rights reproductive rights and all the you know these various things but also turns the page and looks at the aclu and really breaks down the ideals of freedom and kind of the contradictions of it. This is a company that, you know, going actually weird connection to Black Klansmen, those riots and the, or the protests that led to the, you know, death of a woman when the white supremacists drove into the crowd, the ACLU backed up that group. They were the ones that legally supported that group leading into that protest. So it kind of questions, you know, you, you can't say it's equality and you are fighting for equality if you're not supporting both sides. And there's that moral argument of, you know, are you, you know, what does it mean to support white supremacists? Are you in like the right there? You know, what what is the morals? Are we fighting for freedom? Do we want freedom for everyone? And it just gets into such a layered and conversation with so much nuance while keeping these really engaging stories um, that all have their various points they turn out. You know, some of these lawsuits succeed, some of them fail. Um, and it's just an incredibly dynamic documentary. I really recommend people check out. Um, there's just so much to break down. Um, and I'm really happy I got to say it before the end of the year because chances are it will be on my best of the year list. Jakob, do you want to go next? Um, sure, I can. Well, it's 
been a long time since I was here, so I'm, should I go through everything I watched since then? Or, uh, <laughs> um, okay, maybe I'll just pick a few things to, to kind of just... Uh, I, I, I was kind of hoping I, I could say a few words about the Wolfwalkers, which I kind of sort of started watching last night, but I fell asleep watching it because I was so tired. It's not because the film was bad, but, you know, I was, I was so, so tired that I would just watch 40, 40 minutes of this. And then I blinked and it was like an hour in. I was just thinking, I should probably stop and then watch it again tomorrow when I have a bit more strength. So um, what I will say in, instead, shout out, is um, I've watched two films by the uh, Dad Down Brothers recently, which I really, really, I mean, I watched one for the first time, which was The Kid with a, with a Bike. It's an amazing story about, um, well, they're kind of, it's, it's kind of like a neo, Italian neo-realism, but in France but in modern times. So it's about this kid who's from, uh, well, who's abandoned by his father and who, who just, I don't know, just takes off one day and just leaves him in foster care. And he, he just tries to reconnect with his dad and gets you know, taken in by, this, by, by a complete stranger. Uh, and it's, it's just a beautiful sort of like an ode to, you know, Rossellini and De Sica and like these kinds of sort of filmmakers who just take human drama and, uh, and just, just put it within the sort of societal sort of parameters of uh, you know destitution and and, and poverty and, and and sort of that that kind that, that it's that kind of filmmaking which is just brilliant and it's really heartbreaking, but ultimately very hopeful. And I also watched the um, I think the film they followed it up with. I've seen this before, uh, two days one night with um, uh, with that well that's about this woman who's. Uh, who finds out he, she she's going to well basically that in the place she works at other workers were given a vote to say okay if do you want to have a bonus this year or if you uh, or would you like to keep this woman uh, employed so basically she 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 has to has like a whole weekend to con to convince all her sort of colleagues not to vote to get their bonuses but to let her have a job because otherwise she would lose her house and because they wouldn't have enough money to pay their mortgage it's just brilliant. So yeah, if you haven't seen any Dardone Brothers films, that it's pretty much Ken Loach or sort of like Rossellini, but in sort of less political but more humanist. And I really, really recommend all, all of those. I will quickly throw out there for all audiences. We will have a discussion of Wolfwalkers coming in the coming weeks on Clappercast. So definitely look forward to that. It's spoiler alert, quite a good movie. Kevin, what is your recommendations? Well, I I often go through a lot of older cinema. And uh, often stream a lot of stuff through the uh, through the uh, Criterion channel, which haven't used it before. Definitely do recommend using that. And they recently came out with um, the Film Foundation 30th Anniversary Collection, which is like is a is an organization started by uh, Scorsese and I think uh, George Lucas and Francis Coppola back in the 90s to try to champion older older films that might either be on the verge of being lost or just whatever the case might be for him. But there was a particular film in that collection I really wanted to um, highlight, which is called uh, the, the Night of Counting the Years by um, Shadi Salim Abdul. Make sure I have that right. Yeah, uh, uh, Shadi Abdul Salim. And it's from uh, Egypt and really, really beautifully done film. It takes place um, I think it was 1861, which is a, a, the year before the British came and took over the country during their period. And it's about um, this village that goes in and takes um, 
that robs the tombs and sells the sells the artifacts. And uh, one person from the village who decides to team with the uh, the Egyptian government to try to safeguard these these treasures and the, the kind of um, they kind of have a control over their own history instead of just selling it up, just selling it off to the rest of the world, which uh, I really found uh, just a lot about the film, particularly the cinematography and the editing within it, just really fascinating. Just some really great stuff. And you know, if you ever have a chance, definitely, definitely do do recommend checking that one out. Thank you guys so much for those recommendations. And that's going to be it for this week of ClapperCast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Kevin, why don't you start us off? Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, CKKevin24 or a letterbox at CoolKidKevin. Jakob? Oh, you can find me at, on Twitter at TalkAboutFilm. And you can also uh, find my stuff on Clapper where I'm... Uh, feature editor and also if I can shamelessly plug my own stuff as well we can find all my sort of non-clapper r- rants and well and non-letterbox stuff on flashonfilm.com but if you know if if you if you want to write a feature for clapper you know don't feel free to dm me as well uh, yeah that's it I was going to make you restart if you didn't plug your own website. There's a lot of really great content on there. Uh, you can find all my bad takes and ramblings on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews on Letterboxd, just the name Carson Tamar, um, as well as Clapper, Filmotomy, Buttered Popcorn. I write shit everywhere. So just do, follow my Twitter. That's probably the best place to find it. Um, and you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk. And find our social links on Clapper at Facebook, Clapper LTD on Letterboxd, and at Clapper LTD on Twitter, as well as you can follow the podcast at Clapper Podcast on Twitter. There's new episodes every single Wednesday. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow us to be notified when the next episode is released. And thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema or TV or whatever this is. I'm not really sure, but it doesn't really matter. (laughs) We'll see you guys next week.